Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Rethink Energy podcast. Um, I'm Harry and I'm going to be sort of hosting this run through of this week's edition of Rethink Energy. I'm here with Rethink Research CEO Peter White, as well as our solar analyst Andrew Swansonar. In this week's episode, what we're going to be talking about is our long duration storage webinar uh, and what technologies will be able to compete best within the 10 hour storage market. Uh, we'll also be looking at a quarter of contrast for the UK, which has seen uh, very little renewables installations through the first quarter of 2020, but a very high level of renewable generation. Uh, and we'll also be looking at the new integrated resource plans coming out of the US, uh, as well as what the future holds for companies like Shell and BP after writing off billions in assets over recent weeks and through COVID-19. Uh, as always, you'll find more detailed analysis as well as our data and forecasting services on our website, rethinkresearch.biz, uh, under the section Rethink Energy. As the first episode of the podcast, and some of our listeners might not necessarily know who Rethink Energy are, I was just wondering, Peter, if you wanted to give a brief introduction into the Rethink Energy set. Yeah, yeah. So um, Rethink Energy is uh, my fault. It came into existence about 18 months ago. Um, Rethink uh, Research has been around for nearly 19 years. We've been researching other technology markets and we've all all of the older statesmen have been around for uh, 30 40 years in tech but we wanted to get into the energy market about 18 months ago we started this service off it's just building with momentum now um, series of uh, forecasts and then that's led to webinars this year and the service is just starting to thrive so yeah because we actually we, we actually held our first uh, webinar this week uh, well panel webinar this week with I think who we had uh, speakers from Fluence and uh, who else, Peter? Uh, uh, so a company called Enerox, who were kind of offshoot from Cellcube, Vanadium Flow um, company. They're, um, they're kind of next CEO. Um, and from Siemens Gamesa, the part of it that has a thermal storage um, technology and um, Gravitricity that has a mechanical energy storage system, uh, mostly in the UK at the moment, but um, growing rapidly. Yeah, so that was um, looking into uh, sort of longer term energy markets and where that sort of boundary lies in terms of when, we can, when we'll stop using lithium iron. And I think those sort of, those mechanical ones are often the ones that sort of jump into the news. I know there's been a lot of excitement around sort of energy vault and these, uh, these massive towers you'll build out of um, sort of concrete blocks to store uh, potential energy um, and that's sort of what the gravitricity idea is to sort of do that but instead of building up just sort of dropping things uh, down to the ground through sort of existing mine shaft and stuff. So, uh, I mean I think that's really uh, a whole fascinating thing that people um, are can be experts at one of those technologies and know how it works and know the, the fine detail of its um, its round trip ratio and and um, and where it can be installed cheaply and yet that they don't nobody has got a uh, a kind of uh, a proper historical view of what's happening with storage and how change happens we've seen it in other markets you know momentum is a hell of a thing and lithium iron seems to have well not seems to have has huge momentum going into it and it's it's going to become a universal technology and the thing that's really hard to keep in your mind all the time is the rate and this is all throughout renewables is the rate at which the prices are coming down um uh, I, I've, re I've read a couple of hundred of these uh, IRPs in uh, uh, integrated resource plans over the last few months in the States. And uh, there's this 
feeling in energy that things are going to stay the same as they are. Oh, this is the price of lithium ion. This is the price of solar. And of course, um, those IRPs, if they're written in 2016, 2017, had a, a completely false view of the world. And th this is a market that's rampantly changing all the time. And it's that price fall that, um, that makes it such an interesting market. Uh, so, so that price fall then within lithium iron, when you've got sort of um, electric vehicles really starting to um, to grow, is that something that you see the sort of the price falling to an extent where it will squeeze these sort of alternative technologies out of the market? Um, well, so there, there's here's one rule when you when you're forecasting. It's a really important rule. Uh, yeah, is this technology already profitable? Is its R and D being paid for out of its profits? Because any technology where the R&D is being paid for out of venture capital finds it really tough. It's got a, a moment in time when it can compete because as lithium ion gets bigger, its R&D pool just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And and as you, so, so they may focus on, um, there's two types of change. There's, um, there's kind of a change by evolution and change by revolution. And all the big lithium ion companies are changing mostly by evolution tiny bit tiny improvement at a time and oh everyone says oh it's going to stop at some point but then there's these little companies running around trying to change by revolution by reinventing it by changing the chemistry and then they get acquired and next thing you know the whole thing starts again and i've seen that for the past uh, 40 years and you have to be you know, momentum is counts for an awful lot because of this ability to drive R and D from existing revenues. Yeah, absolutely. I think somewhere else we saw that um, in the news this week was in the uh, the Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon, um, which is a project that has been in, yeah it's been in the pipeline for five years. Nothing's happened. Um, it's now basically past its uh, deadline for its application. So I think they'll try and revive it. I think there's a thing called the uh, the Dragon Island project, um, which will be in the shape of a dragon off the coast of off Wales, um, but it's whether or not that comes into coming into existence. Well, I mean, we'll see in the next couple of weeks if it gets approved. But again, it will have another sort of five years where we might or might not see it actually uh, uh, come into fruition. Um, the thing about things like that is when it first came on the market, when the idea was first mooted, it was as big as any of the largest um, generators. And now someone says, hey, I can put uh, two fields for the solar panels and get the same amount of energy. What, what's so big about the lagoon? You know, it's 300 megawatts. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so moving into the, sort of the rest of the issue then, um, uh, we've actually seen, I suppose, this issue sort of really splits into uh, to two sides. Really, there's quite a lot of stuff in the, happening in the US and in the UK. Uh, I know, Peter, you mentioned... Um, so the IRPs we've seen coming out, and uh, Andres, you wrote about uh, one coming out about Arizona this week. Yeah, well, there were there were actually two. There was Tucson Electric Power, which is a bit of a smaller one, and then there was Arizona Public Service, which is the biggest one. Um, and they they both released their IRPs, and they were quite similar actually, except for a couple of details. They both keep all of their gas capacity basically unchanged through to 2035. Um, they both draw down their coal gradually until about 2031, 2033, and they both have a fairly big battery component, like uh, Tucson Electric Power is heading towards 1400 megawatts of battery by then, 
but they they're kind of slow with it. They 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 will only have a hundred or two hundred megawatts of battery in twenty twenty seven, whereas Arizona Public Service is a lot more front loaded with their batteries. They've already set some up. I think was it last year they had a battery fire which delayed that a bit, but it's it's big. Uh, yeah, and I think that's really important because um, um, at the time, hear every headline, and suddenly you thought people would put the brakes on that technology. But here we have the the victims of that fire. Um, a couple of people got injured, and it, it was a bit of an explosion. And of course, God knows what the insurance claim was. But that, and they're still pressing ahead. They're still convinced by the technology. And they're looking at 850 megawatts on, on a much uh, faster time frame, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's going to be a couple of hundred megawatts a year from 2022. So by about 2025, they'll have all that, I should think. And I suppose, um, so this is something that I've been writing about this week, um, is, the, uh, is the Democrats in the US House of Representatives and their sort of bill for um, a big climate crisis action plan. Um, what we really noticed from that is that it's, Obviously, a lot of promises, but not a lot of concrete action that they would uh, put into play within a certain given timeline, really. I mean, we saw maybe targets for 100% sales of clean vehicles by 2035, but in terms of targets for the storage and for uh, renewable generation, uh, do you think that's something that's going to really be state-led then through these ILPs rather than from sort of federal level? I, I do. I, I, I mean, it is state-led. I mean, yeah, what we've seen... Uh, so far is apart from the Sierra Club, which has, has been pushing uh, the states directly through sort of lobbying to governors. Um, it's, it's actually mostly been through um, the governors themselves driving down through the public utilities commissions, driving into the, the policy of their state, into the, um, the, the, the people on their ISO uh, um, and and then um, then putting them out to, for RFPs. And then it's those RFPs we've seen recently that are all top-heavy with um, with energy storage. I mean, just oceans of it. But can, you know, there's 1.1 gigawatts of energy storage uh, installed up to the end of 2019. And I mean, we're looking at, in the forecast, 77 gigawatts being installed by 2030 in the US. I mean, it's... And that's to just put that into perspective, the um, the uh, the hydro um, America has 22 gigawatts of hydro, and it hasn't changed very much in the past four or five years. Almost no new completed projects. But the, in three or four years, we're going to overhaul that in in lithium ion, and then in ten years, we're going to have four times that. So, and California is one of the most aggressive states for, for pushing its uh, utilities in that direction, right? We saw that they've got these targets for August 2021, 2022, 2023, where each of these utilities is required to add a certain amount of battery storage. Yeah, it's 3.3 gigawatts across the two deadlines. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the, uh, by, I think, is it December 2023? Um, they're going to need that half of it by um, uh, August 2021, I think. So what do you think these sort of market conditions are then that's, that's seeing the US really take off in terms of storage um, sort of ahead of, uh, of the rest of the world? I think it's, it, I think it's really, um, it's all about capitalism. I mean, when you get down to it, we, we, we all want to be the altruist who says, are we going to save the world by fixing climate change? But if you can make it so that someone can get rich in the process, 
then there'll be a queue of people knocking at your door, and especially in, in the USA. And that's what, it's the most profitable thing you can do right now. Um, the conditions have been set. The FERC Order 841 basically said, if you're going to trade energy storage in these markets, in the ISOs, you've got to do it on a, on a level playing field. And as soon as that kind of uh, logic came through, um, it suddenly meant, well, energy can really... Um, really help uh, companies you know have a very rich component going through uh, it, there's this example we, we did on the webinar the other day we just looked up um, the uh, the highest uh, amount price for a um, megawatt hour of energy in um, in ERCOT in the Texas market and it was nine thousand dollars earlier that day you could have bought the same amount of energy for forty dollars so if you can, in 24 hours, turn $40 into 9000 that will get you a queue of capitalists um, knocking down the door. Yeah, I suppose that's something that's really sort of overlooked in the storage market is the, uh, the sort of ability to just go into sort of energy trading as a, as, a, as a business, really. And you do all of the same battery. I mean, you can, you can yes. have promises on, on um, to make stuff available for, uh, for frequency um, um, uh, uh, modulation and, and grid stabilization, but and you can have you know um, promises to particular off takers, and you can still have stuff left over to play with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, how will that work for for uh, California and maybe for the surrounding states as well? Because California imports about nine gigawatts of energy at any at certain times of day. Which is more than Arizona's entire demand. Well, I think I think that's that's the thing that uh, you get as you improve transmission. You, you start to get people, and we've got this thing that Harry's been talking about up in the North Sea um, in Europe, where people are going to put, you know, we, 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 you forecast a company, a country like Norway or Denmark to have 100% renewables, and then you stop forecasting. Well, no, you don't, because you, you they're going to sell that their spare wind energy from the North Sea through a transmission line into, into Northwest Germany. Mm. So, so um, you know, as, as transmission gets uh, more into direct current and faster speeds and less losses, and they just get better at it, and as the CapEx is invested in transmission, you get this ability to move energy um, radically, you know, all around, around uh, a, a, a trading block. Um, I mean, who's so supernode have got this dream about doing it around Europe? In fact, that's become a whole European theme now that you want a circle of underwater uh, transmission loops uh, all around Europe so that anyone can trade with anyone. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact is, in, in that sense, is that the more transmission you have, um, the cheaper and cheaper the energy system becomes because you've got, you don't have to do the same level of overbuild that you would um, to account for sort of the intermittency of of the renewables if you can then if you've got sort of a bigger sample size of of generation points yeah and, and, and it's interesting in china that a lot of the transmission runs east west and if you stick your um solar plants um in the north west and, and you stick your uh, um you know hydro in your on the west and and everything runs to the east interestingly the solar is at its most productive uh, when it's three hours darker 
in um, in, in in Beijing. So um, I instead of you needing quite so much battery, uh, solar is arriving at the right time of day for, to hit the second prime time. Well, in in Europe and it's it's uh, energy storage. Do you think Norway's hydro dams could end up being huge for pumped hydro storage for maybe the whole continent or Germany? Um, hydro has got enormous potential, but I think you've got to remember that a lot of enthusiastic amateurs in the 60s and 70s um, went in and built hydro and um, eliminated whole species of fish and, and killed off whole rivers. And there's a, a real deep environmental suspicion around messing with the water supply of a country that supports a lot of, uh, of, of drinking water. Uh, and a lot of um, different species habitats. Um, in the last 20 years, China has built no less than 22,000 dams. It's a staggering number. But even that is slowing down as they start to come across problems. I mean, one of the problems that China has, has found is they cut off the uh, headwaters of some rivers which feed the entire economy of, of uh, Vietnam. So suddenly Vietnam have got waterways they can't travel up and down in boats anymore because there's no water. And, and that's been one of the effects of, of that. So always, I think, when you over deploy um, hydro, uh, there's a 20 year backlash that says, hang about, what have we done? And I think you, you, you will look to see more hydro coming from places like Africa where they have you know, the huge massifs which which can uh, which flood down downhill and uh, can be harnessed. Uh, so I just want to move on then. So we've been just talking about a, a slowdown in uh, in hydro in uh, hydro installations on sort of a, on an international scale. Um, just to sort of move on. Uh, so this week we actually found out that there was a massive slowdown in in wind installations in the UK, um, which is almost surprising. Um, I mean, we saw. So for sort of the quarterly figures that renewables were up to around 47% of the energy mix, uh, three quarters of one. Um, but wind installations were only down to 60 megawatts, which is the lowest they've been since they've been sort of reported by uh, the government. Um, so is that complacency you... by the UK government? Are they, cause, cause the, is that, are they just putting the brakes on or is that, uh, I mean, is it deliberate or is it complacency? I mean, is it coronavirus? I was just going to say that they're pointing the finger at, at coronavirus, but what we have to bear in mind is that the lockdown measures only really came into play in the end of March. So that won't really have affected the rate of installations uh, for quarter one. So um, it is more of a deep underlying issue. It's primarily a backlash from the sort of 2015 policy of not allowing onshore wind to compete at uh, the contract for difference auctions. We're also seeing a little bit of uh, slow down in activity offshore just because of the nature of the sort of being between uh, projects. I think Hornsea Horn 1's basically fully installed now, so um, we're not going to see any more turbines coming online there. Um, but it's not just happening in wind. I think, Andres, have you found something pretty similar in, in the solar sector? Well, yes, but solar has kind of been a moribund for several years, but we saw 35 megawatts in this quarter, maybe a bit more because the figures are incomplete from the the uh, ministry. So it's a, it's a bit like wind. It's just, it's barely there at all. Um, but maybe there'll be a resurgence because they've also re-added solar to the contracts for different auctions. Uh, I don't know how, if, if they're actually as good for solar as they are for wind, 
because they they're on a longer time frame, which is better for Wind's uh, development time. Uh, and maybe it needs a solar plus storage category instead of just being solar. Yeah, I think that's that's a massive thing that will be interesting to see is how they sort of flesh out these contract differences and how they allocate these sort of pot one, pot two, pot three technologies. Um, I mean, obviously, there's quite a lot of capacity that will be handed out the next contract for difference. I think it's it's in excess of 11 gigawatts anyway, um, and that will most likely be fully subscribed to. There, there has already been a, a mild revival of interest. There's, you've got Macquarie Green Investment Group and Enso Energy. They, they've said they're going to be doing a one gigawatt portfolio in the country. EDF and Octo Energy are going to be doing 200. You've got other returning developers like Solar Century. And there's a 350 megawatt plant at Cleve Hill. So there's quite a lot of reviving interest already. Yeah, I mean, and sort of looking beyond that, um, we saw Boris Johnson this week come out with his sort of uh, build-heavy recovery plan um, uh, for the economy sort of following COVID-19. But there wasn't too much uh, mention of renewables in that. Um, I think, Peter, you wrote about that this week. I mean, I, I, I I suspect that Johnson's not comfortable as Prime Minister talking about renewables. Um, we know he's got a bit of a chequered past um, where he, he was kind of almost a denier and he was pro-fracking in the past. I think he's being slowly educated by his current cabinet and uh, some of which are, are renewables aware. And perhaps Rishi Sunak's going to deliver all the good news about renewables next week. But it just looked like they were going to build houses, they were going to build schools, they were going to build... Um, uh, hospitals and they were going to recruit policemen, which are all their 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 um, pre-coronavirus promises. So no change. It's like coronavirus didn't happen. But that's just one speech. Uh, we know that over the coming week, you know, ten days, they're going to flesh out their real actions going forwards. And let's just hope that the renewables get their fair share. Yeah, I, I know from the offshore wind sector in particular, there's been sort of a lot of confusion there. I mean, we've seen. Um, the Norfolk Vanguard project was was approved this week, um, but then they pushed back the decision on Hornsey three back to sort of the end of this year. So, is this sort of long term uncertainty that could potentially see investment sort of detracted from the UK? And sort of- They've done all the environmental searches years ago. They should have all the information they need on that. Why is it that some that a politician or, or somebody? very late in the day, six to seven years into the process, comes along and says, oh, are we sure about that? What's your take on that? Um, my take on it is just this sort of lack of confidence that they have in the sector. I mean, obviously, you've got Drax whispering into their ear about, we need more gas, we need more gas. So there's this sort of ongoing um, sort of frustration and having to, to ask all sorts of different stakeholders in, in offshore projects. Um, and make sure that all, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed before the project moves forward, um, which does seem to be holding things back in the UK, especially at the moment, um, with the Hornsey 3 projects in particular. Uh, but obviously it is obviously very positive that the, the Norfolk project has uh, got off the ground somewhat. I know what I wanted to ask you about, Harry, is, is this piece on, you did on um, Shell um, and um, you know, blaming it all on COVID. Um, how much money are they actually spending um, chasing renewables at this stage, Shell? So I think this is the, the the figure that people don't focus on enough when looking at um, Shell and BP. Typically, they're spending around five to ten percent of their capital investments on uh, on clean energy projects. Um, 
obviously that's because they've got sort of ongoing businesses that they can't just um, abandon straight away. Um, but we do need to see more investment. I think Shell is actually one where we will see that happen. Um, I know that it's Equinor that's going to be leading investment over the next five years. But then beyond that, Shell actually have the most sort of projects uh, signed up into the pipeline, I suppose. The, the big news this week was that they wrote down this sort of $22 billion figure, which is actually larger than the one uh, BP came out with last week. And I mean, they're blaming it on COVID, but they're also blaming it on the price of oil, which they're also blaming on, on COVID. So they're saying that every $10 that the price of oil actually decreases, I think they write off sort of $9 billion out of their, uh, their cash flows. And that obviously leads to things like higher gearing um, and sort of lower financial leverage. So um, what, wasn't it American, uh, a, a very imp uh, influential American financial analyst who said that oil uh, during the renewals cycle will drop to $10? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that it's definitely something that would have happened, well, definitely could have happened anyway without sort of COVID happening, that we'd have seen suddenly the demand for oil drop and then people trying to sort of compete for market share uh, and these prices come down. So it's not necessarily something that, um, that wouldn't have happened otherwise. NTT communications company are spending $9 billion getting into the energy business and they're doing it because that's probably how much they're going to save on energy that will be cheaper. And they're spending more on renewables than Shell and BP put together. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that the, uh, the figure was, um, was that great compared to Shell and BP. It's over 10 years, so maybe not, but you know, Shell and BP, could take their exploration budgets and point them at renewables and um, do themselves a lot of good. And they they still have an exploration budget. You know, it's just extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with Shell and BP is looking at their different uh, tactics into sort of the early energy transition. Obviously, you've got uh, BP, which is cutting jobs, um, but it's also divesting quite a lot of money. So, I mean, it sold its five billion of its... Um, petrochemical business to Ineos uh, last week um, whereas you've got Shell who sort of instead aren't really divesting the same amount um, but have cut their, their dividend levels so um, sort of moving forward it sort of depends how uh, the rating firms sort of see these actions and then what ratings they give these companies in terms of their ability to issue sort of green bonds and stuff and how these rating firms get sort of pulled in by the greenwashing of of Shell and BP. I mean, they'll be promising carbon capture for years to come, I'm sure. Well, we know that's not going to work. I mean, I, I, uh, we should perhaps do a whole podcast on carbon capture. Um, we might, it might be quite funny. Uh, just to Johnson is, round is very up, ambiguous so on, on renewables, like most things. things that we just have in the week. Uh, Vestas actually pulled in a, a massive amount of orders this week, around 1.4 gigawatts of wind orders across 12 countries. Um, this is sort of just a, a rush of, uh, of orders that are coming in. And I know that, Andres, you actually found that there was an energy project, which I think was around 349 megawatts for solar. Yeah, energy is uh, 349 megawatt. It's Lehmandale Solar Farm in Australia, and th that's been improved. It, the approval was actually announced by the Australian energy market operator, which it normally doesn't do that kind of announcement. And I think they did that because the, the grid in that area had been having issues and they curtailed... 50% from five solar farms there, but they've sorted it out now. So that's why they wanted to announce it. Yeah, which will be very good news uh, for Australia. Um, also very good news for the US this week. Uh, they actually installed their first offshore wind for, for many years, um, which were 12 megawatts coming to play from 
uh, Dominion Energy sort of pilot projects for their later sort of 2.6 gigawatt project. Um, so that was uh, Orsted who completed that. But then if we move on to sort of worth noting, um, we saw sort of lots of promises this week. We saw Vietnam saying that they're going to uh, install around 7 gigawatts of wind power. And Taiwan also said that they were going to auction a large amount of offshore wind over the next five years. We sort of threw three new tenders um, which is obviously really good news. Because they, um, they have the Taiwan Strait area where the wind speeds are actually like 20% higher than the North Sea, I think. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, well, there are also really consistent wind speeds there as well. Um, and I think Taiwan really is going to be one of these places where we see a lot of, uh, a lot of offshore wind built out. Because, I mean, Taiwan shares this, this Taiwan Strait with, with China. So, I mean, probably half of the offshore wind there will belong to China, half will to Taiwan, but obviously Taiwan's got much less demand itself so there will be this big export opportunity for, for offshore wind in the future for them. Moving on we've also got uh, a lot of, sort of giants sort of forming within the industry at the moment. We've got Siemens who uh, officially launched Siemens Energy this week. Uh, that company is going to go public with an IPO in September. Uh, we also saw Hitachi acquire ABB Power Grids uh, for 7.8 billion which is obviously a, a massive figure uh, and something that we'll probably be touching on in next week's issue. And I suppose the biggest thing that I picked out from, from your solar worth noting, Andrews, was that there was a two gigawatts worth of solar in India that's been approved. Yeah, so they're going to be signing some 25-year PPAs for that. They also had a, they announced a new tender in India from the Railway Energy Management Company, uh, and it's a, a gigawatt that's going to be deployed alongside their railway tracks, because the, the railway's a huge landowner in India. And um, oh, there was a, there was a, a battery. I how common are iron-chromium flow batteries? Uh, I can't say I've come across them before. Because they've got one, they've they've actually completed it now, uh, under the aegis of the State Power Investment Corporation in Hebei province. They've done a 250 kilowatt slash 1.5 megawatt hour, so it's six, six hours, uh, in Zanshigu photovoltaic power station. But yeah, so that's a, that's an unusual battery type that they're exper experimenting with. Yeah, and it's it's, um, it's interesting to see sort of these markets opening for China, as we were talking about earlier, for long-term storage. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how those sort of develop. Because, I mean, China is a market that we're we're really sort of struggling to to get information from at the moment. Um, I mean, we saw uh, a few, last week, I think, that Shandong province actually announced a um, sort of a, a long to medium-term hydrogen plan, which is something we hadn't seen before. So. It'll be interesting to see where China sort of progresses and sort of where it holds itself in, in the energy storage market and the hydrogen market going forward. I, I actually, that reminds me, there were some, not this week, I think it was a couple of weeks back, but they, they're doing some solar plus battery plus uh, concentrated solar power plus hydrogen, and they're doing it in the West where it's a desert. And I thought that was really weird. And the one case I looked at, they did have some lakes and some canals leading to a river. So they do have some water there. But it's, it's interesting that they're doing it in the West. Yeah, so I think we'll round up there. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the, the first episode of the, the Rethink Energy podcast. Uh, apologies for any sort of teething issues. We'll, we'll get better at this. Um, uh, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. And from me, Andres and Peter, uh, we'll see you next week.